Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, December 20th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor and an academician, gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is December 25th, Christmas Day. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And, of course, for Charles Willard, that's 5.30 a.m. in Central Time. Our team's working to be faithful to year A, and that puts us in the Gospel of John and that big Chapter 1 opening on Sunday. And we hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks who are joining in on today's discussion. Charles Willard, in the dark, hope is not always. <laughs> Sarah Mickelson from Tampa. Bill Hall from St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. And uh, our lead for this week uh, with questions and the scripture reading is our friend Bill. How you doing, my friend? I'm well, thank you. Welcome to my colleagues and those listening and viewing later. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. We are, as Don mentioned, we are preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ this year on Sunday. A brief reminder of the other Gospels. Uh, Matthew begins his account by tracing the lineage of Jesus from Abraham through Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Um, He reports the announcement to Joseph, the birth of Jesus, the visit of the wise men, and the escape to Egypt. Mark begins with John the Baptist and Jesus as adults, thus no birth narrative. Luke's narrative includes the announcement to Zechariah about his son, John the Baptist, to be born, the announcement to Mary that she will birth Jesus, and then Luke reports both of these verse, verse, and the lectionary offers an alternate for this week, uh, much of the second chapter of Luke dealing directly with the birth. Now, we come today, as Don mentioned, to the Gospel of John. I believe it has, in effect, a birth narrative, which we're about to read, but one that does not deal with the details of the birth of Jesus, but instead, I think, can be understood to highlight the meaning of the birth of Jesus, of Jesus' coming into human life. Now, various scholars suggest that what we're about to read, John 1, 1 through 14, is a kind of poetry, and I will, will will seek to reflect that style as I read John 1, 1 through 14 from the New Revised Standard Version, updated version, uh, and interestingly, in Greek and English, the word order is almost exactly the same. It's very, very close. So the Word of God of the people of God from John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, 
And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Sally Smith Holt, a professor of religion, says in her commentary on this passage, quote, the opening chapter of the Gospel of John is considered one of the most beautiful and profound, but also one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It has the potential to leave readers exasperated and confused. Uh, to highlight that, as I mentioned to Don in the pre-recording, when I took a course on John in seminary, uh, studying the original Greek, the professor spent two to three full class sessions on these first 14 verses. Uh, there's a lot here. Now, with our scholars helpful caution in mind, I invite us to enter into a dialogue with this beginning passage of the Gospel of John as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. I have three questions to offer. I'll read them and then we'll come back and work through them. The Connections Commentary helpfully notes that by beginning with the phrase, in the beginning, the writer of John is referencing the Hebrew culture and scriptures, meaning a clear reference to Genesis 1, which also says at the start, in the beginning, and tells the creation story. The writer of John is referencing the Hebrew culture and scriptures, and yet is addressing, centuries later, a Greco-Roman world. Even though we did not live in either of these cultures, in imagination, how do you think the bridge between cultures offered in our passage worked in the first century, C.E., A.D., and how might we bridge this passage into our world today, especially focusing on the term word? Second question. The New Revised Standard Version helpfully divides the passage into four paragraphs. First, clearly a reference to Jesus. The second name is John the Baptist, is the focus. And then with only the transition word, he begins a new paragraph about Jesus, 
concluding with the one sentence uh, fair statement uh, about the word becoming flesh. From a literary and theological perspective, how does this flow help and hinder our understanding of this beautiful and difficult narrative? Three, what does it mean to you and how does it shape and guide your life that God is both transcendent and eternal and yet present and fully human? Okay, question one. And um, Don, heads up, I'm going to come to you first. The Connection Commentary helpfully notes that by beginning with the phrase, in the beginning, the writer of John is referencing both the Hebrew culture and scriptures and yet addressing a Greco-Roman world. Even though we did not live in either of these cultures, in imagination, how do you think the bridge between cultures offered in our passage worked in the first century, C-E-A-D, and how might we bridge this passage into our world today, especially focusing on the term word? Don? Thank you. I was excited by your question. And I want to start, since this is a lectionary podcast, say, in my, in my opinion, tackling this in a matter of minutes and the seconds that we have to discuss this is anti-John 1, uh, that there's no way for me to capture what I believe this says, which has to do with understanding through the arc of our life and, and a glimpse of creation. And that takes, it's not like hours of discussion, but how about days of life and living and reflection. So uh, it's, it can't be done, but I think, I think it, what we can do when we're together as a family is touch on those things that reveals it. So uh, you said bridge in your question. Now, bridge isn't necessarily in that scripture, but I'm going to go for that. I, li- I like the word bridge, and I like it first because you were talking about understanding in the Greco-Roman world, cross-cultural, and the word bridge is great because I think in most languages we can agree on what a bridge is uh, as a metaphor, and we can agree on it structurally in terms of engineering. They look different depending on where you move around the world, but generally I know what a, in the languages I was taught, they have like puente in Spanish and bruca in German, and we kind of understand that. And I'm, there's your first bridge, that this does have human understanding in it. And right in the middle of it, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, is John. John the Baptist, seeing, seeing all these things, reaching conclusions, understanding that this is accessible. So I like the word bridge just because, I don't know about you folks, I think we can all agree on what a bridge is and what it does and the metaphor that it serves. So this is accessible just like the word bridge is. If you're teaching a class or moderating some discussion group on this, one way to approach a bridge and the understanding is a simple two columns. And on the left side, is what you believe is accessible in your heart that you have confidence in. On the right side, the right column, is what is, what is mysterious and not accessible. I dare you. Draw that on a whiteboard in your class. And I think on the left side, you're going to get answers such as uh, the accessible part. Uh, a person. Flesh and blood. I know what that is. I know what a human being is. Jesus is a person. Got it. Healing. Mortality. Maybe a sense of one God, one creator, a monotheistic idea. I think I know love. Uh, I, know what, uh, I know what an original story or a formative story is. 
today, you know, in TV and movies, we call it origin stories. I have a generous sense of that. And on the right side, the mysterious, timelessness, cosmic, eternity. And then I would actually say something with the creator, the ideal, love with, light with. What is that? That's a mystery. And then the one thing that crosses the columns that I understand, have access to, and don't understand is the word love. So I think those two columns, just I'm probably oversimplifying this, is the answer to the bridge, light and dark, understanding and I don't understand. Who stands between those? Christ. Who sees a human being? John the Baptist is inserted in this to say, I see both sides of the bridge. So I think what we're invited to do, I think what the evangelist that wrote this wanted us to do is engage in that left and right. It's clearly going light and dark, so why can't I put a column down the middle of the drive-by board? And to engage in that dance and know that in the arc of our lives, it can be seen and it can be accessed. And the bridge is illustrated with John the Baptist, and it's illustrated with the, the Christ himself uh, becoming a person and living. And then what's essential in this, left and right, is the resurrection. One bridge, one act. One God, one love, and uh, that's all I've got. Since we, you know, we're trying to break down this massive collection of verses in 45 minutes. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Don. Helpful, Sarah. Your thoughts, please. I found Caroline Lewis's blog on this very helpful. Uh, she's known for a book called um, "A Mighty Fortress," John, the Book of John. And uh, she's also a commentator, I think, that hails from the Lutheran perspective. Um, Carolyn shared that, or Caroline shared that this is as much about who God is, what God is about, and to what and to whom God is committed, as it is a declaration about the word itself. And that was very helpful to me. Um, this is definitely a bridging conversation. Uh, it bridges cultures, but I think it also bridges the creator to its to his creation. Um, and and why? I think that's the other lovely thing. This passage tells us how we're connected intimately to Christ and to God the Creator. In the beginning, the Word became human to reveal and to make God known to us. Um, I found that really helpful. The Word explains God to us. God becomes accessible, tangible, huggable, and breakable for the sole purpose to include us in this circle of love. Christmas is a reminder of this inclusion and this intimacy to me. And I think that it bridges not only cultures, not only time, but bridges me directly to the Creator. And for me, that that works so well. And I'm grateful for it. Thank you, Sarah. Charles, your thoughts. Yes, thank you. I see that I'm speaking, continue to be speaking out of the darkness, and I apologize for that. It's not, well, maybe, I'm not I'm not going to try to see, ask myself theologically, what does it mean that I'm in the dark and you're all in the light, although I'm getting the, <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting the idea. Uh, I, as I, as I try to focus on this text, closely, which is something that is useful for this group to do, 
I mean, I find it useful for me to do that, to have this opportunity to look closely at the text. I can I I confess that I am I continue to be confused. I I look down here, for example, um In, in verse 11, he came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. That could be a flat-out statement, and we believe that's correct, except in the very next line, what does it say? But to all who received him, well, who were those that received him that were not included in the first part where it says they didn't? So I, 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 I acknowledge that at this point I continue to be confused about it. Um, the, the text of John is 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 helpful, but it doesn't really tell me where to go and how to get there. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Uh, I will focus my comments in this way. I think this passage of John and what prompted my first question is I think John is modeling what we're about on this lectionary podcast, what anyone is about who encounters scripture. One of my questions, part of the question was, how well do I think it worked in the first century? The answer is, I don't know. We don't know the impact of this podcast or the worship we will have on Sunday or uh, however we encounter scripture. Um, And I think we, we live with that tension that we can't know if the way we're seeking to communicate uh, works, and certainly not for everybody. But having said that, and I've made this comment before on the point, I think we are obligated to try to build a bridge. John was building one across many centuries prior to him, back to creation. We are now hundreds of years past John's writing, and we're trying to build a bridge, um, and and we're called to do that. And the imagery that John uses was difficult to understand then. It is difficult to understand now. I made the reference to the two or three class sessions on this passage. Much of it was focused on the Greek word logos. And what does that mean? There is a mystery ultimately the professor said and others scholars affirm we can't know exactly what that meant. I think that's part of the power of any scripture and of this concept of word. What does it mean in the beginning was the word? Uh, as a lover of books and reading, I, I like that image that the word is a way to communicate. A word is spoken. A word is heard. But ultimately, I find it exciting that this passage still confounds us. And as the scholar said that I quoted uh, Sally Smith Holt, (laughs) it's a beautiful passage, but it's difficult and leaves us in some ways exasperated and confused. So being comfortable leaving us exasperated and confused, I'll move to the second question. And Sarah... I'm going to come to you first in a moment. The New Revised Standard Version, I think, helpfully divides the passage into four paragraphs. The first is clearly a reference to Jesus. The second name John the Baptist is the focus. 
And then, interestingly, in our modern world, instead of saying uh, a pronoun or a name that would make it clear that it was Jesus, the writer simply says he and begins a new paragraph about Jesus. And then there's uh, it's the fourth paragraph is the one about the word became flesh. Sarah, from a literary and theological perspective, how does this flow help and hinder our understanding of this beautiful and difficult narrative? And maybe to focus a little, how how does it work to insert John the Baptist in here and then to come back to Jesus? Your thoughts, Sarah? Um. I think that there's something, if we understand and can and come to terms with John as a, an interesting character, um, it, being out in the wilderness, covered with camel hair, eating from the land, being wholly dependent upon God for the provision of, of everything he needs. Um, I think that that could represent how humanity works with the creator in the creator's purposes. Um, so for me, having the sequence of the structure that John the author gives to the beginning of this book um, is helpful. It's almost as if to say there was the creator at the beginning then there was this understanding of who humanity was through the, the language about John. And then we get the bridge between the two, who is or will become Christ, and, and kind of the juxtaposition of those three elements together. I think that there's some lovely literary structure to support that logic. And I think John opens his book with some very... Um, what I would call old-style logical argument, that here is the creator, here is humanity, and here's why we have the Christ. And I think that the structure of how this is laid out is, is reinforced by that idea. Um, I, I also think that this is the presentation of the first wonder of Christmas. Um, to quote Janet Hunt and her Dancing with the Word um, blog. This is the first wonder of Christmas that God in Jesus became touchable, became flesh and blood, with all of its wonder and all of its fragility, and that there was that vulnerability that God volunteered for when He became flesh. Well said, Sarah. Thank you, Charles. I'm going to pass at this point. Thank you. Uh, Don? Excuse me. Uh, for the literary structure, Sarah, I was looking at N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God this week, and he, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he discussed the frame of John. He calls it the frame. And uh, in my words, the flow 
of the life of Christ in John need to frame. And I think he really emphasizes what that frame is. Uh, and I'll impose saying, I think that frame gives it meaning. You can't remove the frame. I'll, tell, I'll say what the frame he thinks is in a second, but the frame gives it meaning. You, you, if you take the frame away, you have the life of Christ, but you don't have the true meaning. And I think verse 1 talks about we're, we are searching. It affirms that there's a search. There's light and dark. There's two columns, but we're, we are going to be able to bridge those things using Bill's con- uh, metaphor again. And so the frame that he believes matters, and maybe matters most as you go to the literature, is what we're studying today, the in the beginning blockbuster opening, of which you shall read all else through. And then at the end, Sarah, Thomas, my Lord and my God. He thinks that's the frame. And you read those together. And it's actually a true frame because Thomas is right up to the end. Some scholars would say it's at the end uh, before John may have been expanded. But that's the frame that we're supposed to work in. And I quote him from the Resurrection of the Son of God book. He says, and he writes, quote, when Thomas burst through initial doubt to sudden faith in Jesus' bodily resurrection, he claims, my Lord and my God. And the evangelist clearly intends this as a climactic and decisive concluding statement of what was said in the gospel's prologue. He goes on to say there's no suggestion in other resurrection stories or in the stories of Paul's conversion that there was an instant deduction that ran risen from the dead, therefore in some sense divine. But here it is, the verse at the end, and that bridge is who's seeing is, is uh, John the Baptist. So I, uh, I like the frame, and I like the frame because there's an orthodoxy. If, if you believe in what N.T. Wright's saying, thou shalt not remove the frame. Otherwise, you've got a blockbuster plot, and that's it. You must confront the frame. Of course, it begins with it, the literary imperative. And I'm going to do some cheap analogies. I'm reading Huckleberry Finn. Are you reading Huckleberry Finn? But I'm extracting any evidence of what happens to his father. It's a great story, but I'm going to extract the fact of his father, Huck's father, and he who's, who's killed early in the story. Uh, I've got another one. I'm writing a book on the history of America. Uh, but I'm going to extract anything that has to do with the African-American experience. Ooh, that sounds kind of familiar. Do I have a totality of the reading of the context of the story? No, it's this one page on slavery. Is that the history of America? Is that the true history? Is that the origin story that we want? I'm reading T.S. Eliot, but there's no wasteland. The imperative, the frame. I love N.T. frame. Because then the, what's in between the frame? The bridge that allows Thomas to say, my Lord and my God, which is sure knows how I start any prayer. I begin my Lord and my God, which says you've got to go to chapter one. You declare that first. Everything else follows, and every bridge of our life will follow there too. That's what I've got, Bill. Thank you, Don. Um, Sarah, you referenced Caroline 
Lewis, I listened to the Working Preacher podcast and, uh, on this passage, and um, she makes an interesting statement. She says that uh, verse 5 about the light and the darkness must not overcome it is the first introduction of teaching in John, uh, the, the contrast between darkness and light. Um, and that, for me, uh, <clears throat> suggests uh, why the writer of, the, of this gospel, as I put it, inserts John into the narrative. I think it's a signal, again, of the humanity of the gospel. John the Baptist was a human being <laughs> in his world, a strange person where he hung out and ministered his clothing, his diet. Um, and this concept of acknowledging the darkness, the readers, those reading this gospel, this was written after the fact. They already knew the outcome of the story of John the Baptist, that the darkness seemed to win. He was murdered, beheaded on a whim. And he was the victim of the darkness of human existence. The readers already knew that Jesus had become also a victim of human darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. We live in the light of the resurrection, which you referred to, Don. So um, I find that linking the eternal God becoming human in Jesus, but also acknowledging the humanity and the place of John the Baptist. I, I think it's just part of the powerful weaving of, of this passage and why, in one sense, fully understanding it is and will remain beyond our capacity. All right. Question number three, and Charles, a heads up, I'm going to come to you first in a moment. What does it mean to you, and how does it shape and guide your life that God is both transcendent and eternal? God is beyond us, and yet in Christ, the word become flesh, God is present and fully human. Charles? I don't think we have any way of understanding that. Okay, Don? Well, I guess I better stay on my studies because I said, how can we do this in a short amount of time? And it's about the arc of our lives and the bridge. So I'll just do it as, a, as my own frame that I think this is so bold. Uh, it, it is an encouragement uh to be mindful of what i what i de- what i do and what i declare at the beginning of every day and that do i dare make a declaration like this both ends front end relate the creator and the eternal existing love pre-existing love and the one man saying my lord and my god is that something that i'm framing for myself because i live in the middle of those two things too uh, every day, 
I'm, I'm issuing it as a challenge. I'm not faithful to it, but what do I declare, and therefore what do I confess every day? And uh, and I think this is a this is a statement of confidence and love, the mystery of love, love on both columns. I think eternal love and the love that we feel in our lives to bridge those together, that they are the same or very very close to each other. Those two loves. It's the, it's where the light shines on both sides of the the column. And uh, and then finally, I think to acknowledge that I think like a lot of human beings, I live in two columns. Light and dark, good and bad, understanding, don't understand. And I think I think there's a challenge here uh, to have confidence and faith that that's not a hard wall. There's a blend, like John the Baptist. There's a there's a, a startling admission, like Thomas. That 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 line between those two columns is is not a wall, but uh, uh, there's a bridge. Maybe it's an aqueduct. It flows like water. Uh, between between the two things, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mysterious and abstract. I just think there's really power in that declaration of uh, of the front and the back end of this gospel uh, on a daily basis, uh, I, and that's that's the best I can do with it, uh, Bill. Thank you. I, you you captured me with your image of aqueduct. <laughs> I like well, you, that. You started it. You said bridge. <laughs> Sarah? I think Jesus is an intimate witness, a living evidence, if you will, um, of God's love for me and for all of humanity. Um, a bit of living proof that there is no length, no limit, that God will not go beyond to touch, to reach, and to know my heart, to engage and challenge my mind and patiently wait for my interaction and participation in his kingdom. Um, it's at one moment very corporate and at the same moment very intimate. And I think that that's the insistency of God's love, the constancy of its reaching toward us. And that we have this passage to represent that mystery. Um, we have this passage to represent what's tangible about that. Um, it's a big idea. Um, one that you could probably spend, I don't know, a whole lifetime considering, ruminating on. Um, but I think that that's the, the best part of it, is that God's intention is to reach to you and to me in an intimate fashion um, that supersedes our desire to keep God at arm's length, um, that, that overpowers sometimes what is required in the human brain for logic and understanding um, and moves us toward what is mysterious and what is um, undefinable. So, for me, I think that's what this passage means. Don's going to go turn on the lights again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> She's referencing that the room Don is in and the lights are motion activated. <laughs> so you have to move around. Uh, 
I think we're all somewhat on the same page. Um, one of my favorite, and the older I get, the more it's a favorite statement is in First Corinthians 13. We see through a glass darkly. It's sometimes translated a mirror dimly. The original Greek can be translated in a riddle. <laughs> we, we, we live with a riddle. Uh, but the verse goes on to say, but then we will see face to face. So that's part of where I am. I, I in some ways, would echo Charles. I, I don't really know what it means, but I do believe it. I believe that the God who is beyond us is also with us. The God whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose ways are not our ways, is involved in the ways of human beings. I like your statement, Sarah, as I understood it and remember it, that there, God will go to any length to be with us. Uh, and as a pastor, uh, even in the here and now, as I walk with people who feel utterly hopeless, uh, often I say, there are no magic words. I, there's, you're not asking for a magic end to your grief or whatever, but what I can assure you is that God is with you. Uh, now, I began by saying that this passage is considered by some to be poetry. Um, in preparation this morning when I got up, as usual, I read the daily posting by Father Rohr uh, from the Center for Action and Contemplation. And this morning, he includes a quote from Madeline Lingle uh, entitled, God in the Galaxies and in Humanity. And I want to read a portion of this. Lingle wrote, I look at the stars and wonder, how old is the universe? All we know is that once upon a time, or rather, once before time, Christ called everything into being in a great breath of creativity. Waters, land, green growing things, birds and beasts, and finally, human creatures. The beginning, the genesis, not in ordinary earth days. The Bible makes it quite clear that God's time is different from our time. A thousand years for us is no more than the blink of an eye to God. But in God's good time, the universe came into being, opening up from a tiny flower of nothingness to great clouds of hydrogen gas to swirling galaxies. In God's good time came solar systems and planets, and ultimately this planet on which I stand on this autumn evening as the earth makes its graceful dance around the sun. It takes one earth day, one earth night, to make a full turn, part of the intricate pattern of the universe. And I love the way she ends, and God called it good, very good. We see in a mirror dimly, a glass darkly, we live with riddle. We live in dangerous and difficult times, but God is present. And in God's good time, God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Don, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you. What a pleasure to be back in John 1. Uh, 
there were a few references during the podcast to lights going off and on. And there's a funny little reminder metaphor going on since you're, uh, this is a podcast and you're listening, you're not seeing, but we, we use uh, a lot of video conferencing to see each other so we can communicate. And every now and then some of you look in, but you, you, the reference is Charles Willard can't get his camera to work. So there's out of the boxes, there's a black box there. Charles is literally looking like he's sitting in the dark. So it's a beautiful reference. And then I'm in an office, I'm at my headquarters where I work. And if there's no movement, the light goes off and I have to get up and wave my hands. All of you know what that is. So I just want everybody to understand those references are kind of sweet uh, about lights going on and off and Charles going, you're in the light, you guys, and I'm in the dark. It's really sweet. Uh, well, sweet for you. <laughs> sweet to me, right? <laughs> well, you look great, Charles. You really do. Uh, so uh, uh, this program is made possible by Palmasia Presbyterian Church. That's at 3501 West San Jose Street in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always recommend that to everybody for uh, great discussions studies, Sunday school, the opportunity to take communion, outstanding music, great sermons, differences of opinion. So so check that out. Uh, and then for a reminder, if you ever want to communicate with us, we welcome your emails and you write lectionary call-in, palmacia.org, lectionary call-in at palmacia.org. And then finally, uh, setting the stage for the weeks to come, uh, in year A, this is Christmas. We're back to Matthew for the next two weeks. Sarah's picking up on Matthew next week, and then I'll pick up on Matthew. And then a slight change. We remain committed to the gospel readings, which is mostly Matthew and year A, but we're going to look at it through uh, the guidance of some letters. We're going to, uh, in Epiphany, go to Acts 10, and then we're going to spend the rest of Epiphany in Corinthians. So if you're reading ahead, Stick with those Gospels, but we're going to look at through the dimension, mostly of 1 Corinthians during Epiphany. And you're always welcome. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next time.